Welcome to Maestros On Air, presented by the Space Coast Symphony Orchestra, recorded at Maestros Cafe, located at the Brevard Central Library and Reference Center in beautiful Cocoa, Florida. Maestros On Air is a discussion of culture, news events, and life on the Space Coast, and highlights the music concerts, and personalities of the Space Coast Symphony Orchestra. Today's show features President of the Symphony Board, Eric Lee. Now your host, SESO Director of Communications, Bill Trudeau. Top of the morning to you. Top of the morning to you, Bill. Top of the morning, gentlemen. And uh, why don't you introduce our uh, special guest? We have a special guest. Drum roll, please. Aaron Collins, good morning. Good morning. I, I'm not that special anymore. I've been on this show quite a few times. So. No, you oh, you're, my, still spe- you're still my special. My special card is... Uh, you're still special. It's worn. Aaron, that's not true. Here is why I say that. Because you steer the ship, and it's always an honor to have you here. And I'm every bit as excited today as I've ever been to be a part of this thing. <laughs> or are you guys renewing your wedding vows? What yes. is that? <laughs> you know what? In a, in a sense, maybe. I'm extremely I'm happy to be here because I got the pre- I got here first. I got the premium view spot. We're over at the River House in the conference room. I've got a full view of the uh, Indian River. So I'm very happy about you paint, that. You paint a heck of a picture. Thank you. Yeah, that's Thank great. You. I'll be here all week. Anyway, uh, we have a very good show. It's exciting to be here, and um, we have some things coming up. Obviously, the end of the season ends with the, the season ends with Earth Odyssey. Very big in conjunction with NASA. We're going to be talking about that. Aaron is going to pull back the curtain, and we're going to talk all about what's involved. Um, we have Symphony for Good, as always. Um, and then, plus, we have a fabulous interview today as well. Yeah, yeah. Who's the interview with? It's uh, with uh, the composer of Earthscape, Adam Leiden. So I sit down with him. We talk a little about the piece along uh, uh, along with a little about his life as well. So it's a really fun interview. And that's wow. a world premiere, right? Yeah, this is going to be the first time it's been performed. And oh. it's a really nice piece. I'd say very cinematic. That's going to be very exciting. Yeah. Well, I know the last uh, show, we were going to talk about Deflate Gate. And I know. I was... <laughs> We ran out of time. I know, we did. I brought it up. I even brought it up at the beginning of the show. I said, we're just, you know, in a little bit, we're going to be discussing Deflategate, right? Right. With our with our other special guest. Right, uh, Dr. Pat Hennessy. Yeah. And who's we a didn't. huge football fan. He's a huge football fan. We didn't even bring it up. I, I don't know, know why. It's shocking. But, you know, we have a bigger football fan even right here. Aaron is a huge fan. I am. He's Mr. Football. That's what they call me. So what's your uh, opinion on uh, Deflategate? Uh, I think it's a situation that's kind of been blown out of proportion. Uh, I don't think it's an issue at all. I don't think there ever was really? cheating um, in the first place. Yeah. And I, th- well, I think a lot of it is that the, because of Spygate, I think they're treating the Patriots a different way than they would have otherwise, I think. Because I yeah, think you if, can say that. I think if they would have, you know, this football thing, I think it would have been a slap on the wrist. I, this is a huge, it's a huge thing, you know, four games, two draft picks. I think it's all going to be fight. overturned. Yeah, you're probably you're probably right about. I I'm, I think Roger Goodell, the only way to save his job um, 
to him is to overturn these things, uh, which would please the Patriots. I think with all this new evidence coming out or all these rebuttal um, uh, information coming from the rebuttal from the Patriots, I think that uh, uh, things are being pointed out that uh, take the finger off the Patriots and almost point towards the Colts. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, So I think this situation is far from over, but I think ultimately... Uh, the Patriots will be exonerated, and uh, I think Roger Goodell will probably be out of a job, and we might be seeing some uh, violations from the Colts. So oh. it's an interesting. Uh, a lot of things been happening over the weekend. So. Yeah, and Goodell, you know, was friends with Robert Kraft. <laughs> he was. I don't think they're and friends now. But no bigger supporter <laughs> for right. Goodell than Robert Kraft. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. I would like to point something out, if I may. What's um, that? Who's to say? Look, letting a little air out of a football just might even help somebody else's game. I mean, why is, okay, well, let's see. The uh, Patriots prefer to have less air in the football. You know what? Well, I it's think like a lot a, of court, quarterbacks. That's what I'm okay. saying. It's like a, a horse race, okay? Right. You have horses, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with horse racing, but horses, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because Kentucky Derby just ended, so we do right, have we a lot of people. Us, yeah, know, we have a lot of people that listen, you know, that, right. that are horse racing fans as well. You can have a sloppy track as opposed to a hard track. Right. In other words, it's raining, it's a mess, and that skews a lot of bets. You know, a sloppy track, a long shot is supposed to be a favorite when the, the track is real muddy and sloppy. Right. Well, that's not always the case. You know, just like this deflate thing, maybe it played in the favor of the other teams. Anyway, I'm not a... Well, you couldn't tell that by the score. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But that's why, let me tell you something. If the other team had won, this would not be a big deal. Right. And then once, you know, at halftime, they got the footballs to the right... um no pressure, right. and but then I the, think, the Patriots spanked the Colts. Right, so, I think you know. the biggest point to take away is that there is no evidence that uh, suggests that Tom Brady asked for the balls to be lower than twelve point five, which is the uh, which is the law. I mean, that's right. You, right. you you can get your balls all the way down to twelve point five, and I don't think there is anything that shows that uh, he asked for that. And I think he just wanted his balls as low as they possibly possibly could be. Um, that's a good point. Yeah. Right. So I think, uh, I think that's good. Ladies so, and gentlemen, thank you for joining us again for Maestros on Air, your center <laughs> of news about culture and music and life on the Space Coast. And yeah. sports. And sports. <laughs> uh, well, but you great. never know. I think based upon this conversation, we might have a head football coach or two maybe retiring, relocating to the Space well, Coast. Know, maybe mm-hmm. you could Before take that commissioner long. job, you know. <laughs> Although I think Condoleezza Rice is up for it. But, you know, if Goodell's... I would love to see Condi Rice in that role. Yeah, she'd be, she'd Condi, be good. good she'd old Condi. She'd be yes. good, so... All right. Could be number two. So, all right. So, what are we talking about music again, or are we going to stick with? <laughs> well, <laughs> we have some interesting things coming up. You know, we could always just uh, go to the first part of the interview. Well, that would be wonderful. Yeah, it's with Adam Lydon. He's the composer of Earthscape. Uh, Adam's Earthscape is a tribute to the beauty and majesty of the planet. Um, he wanted to celebrate the diversity of Earth and uh, its fragile nature and. Um, it's formidable power, so to speak. So I think uh, he has some really good um, ideas, and I think it'll be interesting for our audience to hear how he conceptualized the piece and uh, also hear a little about his uh, past and uh, some of his favorite composers and, and works that influenced him. So it'll be a really fun interview.
Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Collins, Artistic Director and Conductor of the Space Coast Symphony Orchestra. Hope you all are doing great. Today, my guest is Adam Leiden, a 31-year-old composer from Orlando, Florida. We will be premiering his Earthscape piece that he wrote for the Space Coast Symphony this weekend on May 23rd and 24th. Adam, welcome. Thank you, Aaron. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm so excited. Well, I'm excited to have you. This is your first podcast interview, right? Yes. In that case, welcome to the Thunderdome. We are going to be breaking you in. Welcome to another edition of Thunderdome! I had to throw in a Mad Max reference. Before we get into your piece, uh, let's get into your life a bit. Can you tell us about how you discovered music? Well, I started when I was 15 years old. Uh, I started playing drums, and I'm basically self-taught. Okay. Did you play in a, in bands or in, in school, or did you play drum set at home, or what? Just drum set at home. Okay. It was it was a pretty it was a good sized drum set, and cool. then uh, a year later, I started learning guitar. All right. Um, also self-taught. One of my biggest influences is Rush. Rush, absolutely the band. Love, I love Rush. Love, absolutely love Rush. What do you love about them? <laughs> I mean, their music is awesome for yeah. one. But well, I mean, what is it about their music that kind of separates them from some of the other bands? The things they talk about, their lyrics—they're yeah. just so incredibly deep. Yeah. Um, and not just that, their 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 music, their rhythms. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Getty Lee—he can play uh, the bass pedals, the keyboard, and sing at the same time. That's just. That takes talent. Yeah, that takes a lot of talent. Yeah. And then Alex Lyson, I mean, lightning fast fingers on the guitar. When you're playing, you learn learning rush on the guitar and the drum set. Uh, mainly the drum set. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, set. I, you know, really trying to emulate uh, Neil Peart's r- rhythms and. Yeah, he's a great drummer. He is. He's a weird he, guy, but yeah. a great drummer. Um, actually, I I traded in my my first drum set for for a larger drum set and uh I, I got like a drum rack uh-huh. and it was like it turned into basically from like a single eight piece to like a 22 piece drum set yeah awesome and it was like a, like a, a wrap around 180 sweet i saw neil perth and buddy rich do a drum off and Ooh. it was awesome wow. neil was not only a a great rock drummer he was Mm -hmm. also a fantastic jazz drummer and i think that's what really made him stand out as one of the finest drummers Mm -hmm. uh of that era so cool rush all right i would have never known When did you actually start getting interested in writing music? I started when I was uh, doing my theater degree at UCF. Okay. I, I started taking music classes. So you're, you were a theater major to start with? Yeah, I, okay. did, I did my minor in music. Okay. I started taking classes in 2008, and uh, basically I was hearing these musical 
ideas in my head, these melodies, and I didn't, what are these things? Where are they right. coming yeah, from? Yeah. And I wanted to learn how to, you know, how to write them down, how to, how to put them into music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first started, I, I felt kind of incompetent because like, it seemed like everyone else knew more than I did, like all the music majors, and mm-hmm. I was like taking classes with them. I just felt really incompetent because they had had more experience than I right. did, right. and I'm like trying to catch up, right. and it was, it was really a struggle for me. Well, you know, a lot of composers, uh, some of the best composers started late in their life as well. Everyone goes through those type of things as a composer. So you found out, you started taking composition classes, lessons, mm-hmm. and started discovering how to get these ideas out of your head. Yeah. In uh, 2009 is when I started uh, taking private lessons with uh, Christopher Marshall. Mm-hmm. Good friend of mine. He's, he's abs- awesome. He's, he's a really down-to-earth guy. He really understands composition and orchestration. And, you know, just as a human being, he's, he's, one, he's one of the coolest guys that I've ever known. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And you can, you can hear his personality in his music. And yeah. it's just, he's just a terrific composer, teacher, and like you said, person. He's very humble, mm-hmm. and he's uh, just a very kind, kind man. So you're very lucky to study with him. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm so honored to, to have learned these past, what, six years studying with him. I've, yeah. I've learned so much. So what kind of things have you focused on with him? What kind of things in your music that you have more trouble with it, uh, that he can really help guide you through that process? Is there anything specific? I wouldn't say specifically, but I'd say there's a lot of things rhythmically and color-wise that I don't quite understand, like how certain instruments work right. together mm-hmm. and and how to get them to work together. Right, orchestration. That's that you're always learning. Right. And there's composers who are just doing new and inventive things through orchestration mm-hmm. that uh, you discover all along the way. I've found that Sometimes I do these things that are out of the norm, mm-hmm. and when I'm when I'm in a lesson with him, he just he he brings these things up. He says, "Well, you know, this is kind of this is kind of unusual, but maybe it's okay. Right? Maybe it's okay, and and maybe that's what you want. And then I have to I go back and I think, well, is that really what I want? Do I know what I'm doing? Yeah. And I, I second guess myself. Well, that's one of the things about composition. You're constantly second guessing yourself, and you're mm-hmm. constantly changing things on the go. Right. Um, I remember a story. Aaron J. Kernis, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning composer, I've talked about him on other shows, and he's come down here, and we've done a few pieces by him. Uh, he was he won the New York Philharmonic First Listening Contest. It was, and there's a great story. He was a very young man, mm-hmm. and the New York Philharmonic's playing his piece. And he is sitting there, and Zubin Mehta is uh, conducting the piece. Mm-hmm. So there's a point in the piece, Zubin Mehta looks at Aaron and says, this is not how it should be. And Aaron J. Kernis, I mean, as any other composer, Zubin Mehta tells you something, you're like, okay, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, and do what he tells you to do. Right. But Aaron, he just looked at Zubin and said, that's exactly what I want. Right in front of all the musicians. Wow. And that's how he kind of jumped on the scene. And now, of course, it's just, it's a great story. A defiant young composer who knows exactly what he wants, mm-hmm. he knows exactly what he hears, is telling the conductor how it is. And uh, that was a really big moment in the music world and for uh, Aaron J. Kernis. So... Let's talk about your composition process a little. Okay. Okay? When you're writing a piece of music, uh, how do you begin? What do you begin with? I hear a melody in my head. All right. Typically, about 75% of the time. The melody. Right. It's a okay. melody, some sort of melody. Okay. 
sometimes it's very specific or sometimes it's very kind of rough. Okay. So then I sit down at the keyboard and I, I sit there and I figure out what exactly it is until I get it, until I get it pretty much how I feel like it's, it's going through your mind. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then from there, once I have the melody, I, I work with the harmonies. I try to figure out what the harmonies are. Yeah. If they're simple harmonies or if they're more complex. you hear the harmonies in your head or are you writing harmonies from your melodic fragment? Sometimes I do hear them in my head. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I... I Play around my, with some chords and find what yeah. you like best. A lot of the times I find that I'm hearing the harmony before the melody, mm-hmm. which then I have to kind of like backtrack yeah. and say, okay, well... I hear these harmonies. What is the melody underneath that? Right. So, in that sense, it's it's different, and it's it becomes a different process at that point. Right. Yeah. A lot of composers composers start from different places rhythmically, right. just maybe even simple rhythm. Right. Any thoughts? So that's interesting. So you start with melody, work on harmony, and then mm-hmm. where do we go from there? Uh, and then from there, I mean, uh, I then I then I go into instruments. What yeah. what instrument? is this melody and where, where am I hearing it? Am I hearing it in general in the brass? Am I hearing it in the winds, the right. strings, percussion, whatever? Um, and then I'll go in and I'll play around with different instruments in uh, Cubase, which is, yeah. which is one of the top programs that a lot of uh, professional uh, composers use. Sure. They're, uh, for our listeners, it's sound samples and, uh, and a brilliant library of samples that you can really uh, put a quality demo out uh, to the public. Mm-hmm. And potential people who may be um, using your music. I knew most film composers have to create a demo Mm -hmm. of their work, a very good sounding demo, in order for a director to even listen to it. Yeah, and Cubase is 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 an absolutely phenomenal program. The 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 amount of work they put into it is just is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. Do you sketch out? Do you have an idea in your mind the architecture of the piece? As far as uh, the structure in general, or does that kind of come as you as you write, or do you have a kind of a framework that you're working with with your music? Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, depending on what you're writing. Right. If I know that I have a bunch of ideas that that go together, mm-hmm. then I can create a framework around that. Right. But if it's just one idea, a simple idea, there's really no structure. The framework grows out of that. Yeah. There, yeah. I'll go back to it at a later point, and then maybe the, the melody changes. And right. in fact, a lot of times it does. Um, I don't like what I heard. I don't, I don't like the instrument that it's in. I want to put it into a different instrument Yeah. And, and use the color of that instrument to bring out the melody more. Yeah. I mean, instrumental combination can make or break your music, really. right? And there's a lot of composers have such a keen ear. John Williams is a, just a perfect example. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has the John Williams sound for one, but secondly, it's just, I mean, it's perfect the yeah. way it's orchestrated. It's just, and as a composer, I think, you know, you just have to go back and look at all the great scores, all the great orchestrators, Mendelssohn, Tchaikovsky, Respighi. I mean, these composers that have such a keen ear and their instrumental combinations still work today and when i was writing music i went back and i just you know imitated their orchestration you know Mm -hmm. i took what they what they did on the score and i transferred it into my music and from there i just started discovering more and more instrumental combinations 
Yeah, and I find that the the more I learn, the more the more combinations I I find and I, I really love and I get into and I, I yeah. try to use them as not as much as possible, but whenever it's the right time to use them. Yeah. For example, the combination of uh, French horn and bassoon, I absolutely yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, flute and bassoon, like mm-hmm. a, like a kind of high bassoon and high flute. I absolutely love that. It's, a, it's such a graceful sound. Yeah, it is. There's an awful lot that goes into the orchestration. I mean, uh, that's why I like these things. It shows behind the scenes. Good job, Aaron. I like that. Yeah, Thank it's you. really interesting how he's um, making it. It's kind of almost like uh, chamber music, how he's pairing the instrument, you know, the different instruments with ones that normally aren't, uh, you know, normally aren't uh, paired together like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he talks a little about his uh, favorite instrumental combinations. Uh, every instrument has a certain color, a timber, and uh, the pairing of the instruments, the orchestration of a work is uh, half the battle in composition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can can either make or break your piece, so to speak. So uh, there's a lot of interesting uh, information there. What was his inspiration? I mean, as a, that type of orchestration, did he have any model, or I did he just come up with it on his every own? composer has a few models, a couple composers they try to emulate, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, he talks a little about Respighi, mm-hmm. Hansen, and in um, uh, his influences, and uh, so I think hey, for each composer, it's just a bit different. Okay, right. yeah. that's you know that's really interesting, and like you said, that's what makes it that can make or break you how you orchestrate the music. Absolutely. And there's some composers that just have brilliant orchestration that can just, you know, uh, it can really uh, change the outcome of the piece. You know, if I had it to do over, I think I'd like to be uh, uh, a composer. As opposed to decomposing? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, because they, uh, you seem to have a lot of fun uh, creating. It's all about creation, you know, and they create. And it basically, you know, people say that the window to the soul is, are your eyes. No, I mean, that, yes, but music is also a window to your soul. And uh, I just think uh, they have, I don't know, I just love to, uh, um, I love the idea of a person sitting down and just letting their mind open up and creating whatever comes to mind, basically. But knowing the intricacies of music allows you to do that. Right. So I just think it's the best of both worlds. And they're not only at, at, a musician at heart, but they are creating. Right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if I had to do it to do over, that's what I would do. Oh, well, it's not too late. You're not eh, dead yet. You could still no, do I'm it. I'm not dead yet. That's true. You could still do it. Yeah. Never too late. But uh, Aaron composes too. I mean, you're that's a right. composer yourself. I am. Yes. Yeah. Um, I haven't written as much as I would like to. Actually, I haven't written anything the last couple of years um, since I got so busy with conducting. It's been uh, conducting kind of... Uh, took my passion away from composition and, and moved it towards uh, getting in front of the orchestra. But I am writing a piece this coming season, which I'm excited about getting back into it. But yeah, there's, it's a fun process. It's a very lonely process. Um, but uh, I think really rewarding one. Mm-hmm. So what's your, like with orchestration, what are you, cause I know the type of music you like, 
What, what are you looking at as far as like... It varies. I mean, when I started out young, uh, Tchaikovsky, Mendelssohn, those yeah. were two composers mm-hmm. that I really uh, emulated mm-hmm. in my orchestration. I mean, they were kind of... They're kind of the standards of orchestration, right. uh, how to really make an orchestra shine. Um, but as I uh, uh, evolved, um, so did my interests. So in, into contemporary music, Stravinsky, mm-hmm. Respighi, Mahler, those composers uh, really influenced my... Uh, orchestration so yeah right and Richard Strauss is a master orchestrator and absolutely we'll that this weekend so. yes and it's a very large orchestra uh, this particular work also Sprock Zarathustra uh, he uses the whole gamut of orchestra um, of instruments in right. this piece and I think uh, it's gonna be very exciting and you're right his his orchestration is just really brilliant right he would have been uh, you know if he was born and a little bit earlier or later and been like a film co- composer he would uh been uh you know really um owning hollywood i think he would have owned hollywood yeah because you know a lot of the great composers have or the film composers have you know stolen from you know ricard strauss and all the other like a johan williams ex- well i didn't want to say that <laughs> oh, that's but, a good one no you, you didn't know, have to jeremy did right but you know what the you know talent borrows genius steals so Yes, but you it's know. true. Yeah. Yeah. That's really a good great. point. And then we're um, also... Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. You first. I oh. I, uh, I insist. Oh, you, you're, you two are fair. like heckling Jekyll. After you. No, no, after you. <laughs> no, I insist. No, I was actually going to say uh, we're doing... You know, also, we haven't really talked about this, doing the uh, Robert Schumann Konzertstück for four horns. Aaron, you're a horn, you know, horn player. Mm-hmm. What was your... Um, inspiration like what recordings and things did you you know listen to because when i was going to school uh chicago symphony came out with the uh, recording with clevenger on. i mean that was like a really yeah clevenger's one of the really huge benchmark recording. horn players that uh that all horn players listen to i really uh, as a horn player i really gravitated to the recordings of dennis brain mm-hmm. and then also uh farkas and tuckwell just a little mm-hmm. um but yeah Dale Clevenger. So you're familiar with that recording, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I remember that was, what came out was, I mean, that was a huge recording, you know, da, 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 da. Huge. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great piece. I'm really, I I don't get to play on that one, so I'll get to listen to it, so. Well, we um, we have a very uh, exciting season coming up. Let's talk a little bit about Symphony for Good, if we could. Okay, we can do that. I have been uh, very busy going to the mailbox this past le- week, and there have been like tons of envelopes. You go one, once a day, right? Is once a it? day, and is that what the doctor ordered? Yeah. Okay. Once a day keeps the uh, treasurer away. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've been going into the mailbox, and there's been tons of envelopes. I just want to thank everybody for all their contributions. We're not there yet. We haven't reached our goal, so it's still not too late. You can still contribute, but. It's been great. I mean, I've had to have like a wheelbarrow a couple of times, you know, just to get all the envelopes out of the mailbox. They put this little key in and say, you got to go, you know, into the big mailbox <laughs> to bring back everything. You so. like that. You oh, yeah. I love the big mailbox. I love it. Yes. I love like the little donation envelopes because I know those are, you know, donations. Well, we appreciate everybody's support. I mean, we are a nonprofit, um, you know, and it is uh, a symphony orchestra. There are symphony orchestras around the world that are that are struggling and going under. And uh, we wouldn't be able to do it without your support. Every one of you that supports our effort. And we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, really appreciate. I think each each one of you. Well, what about going to 
part two of this amazing interview. Uh, do you work good under pressure? Yes. You do? Okay, that's Definitely. good. That's a good trait to have as a composer. Yeah. Do you have any favorite composers? Yes. Okay, good. Who are they? I love Respighi. Absolutely love Respighi. What do you love about Respighi? I mean, his The Pines of Rome. Great piece. Oh, my God. I absolutely love that, that piece. one of your favorite pieces? Definitely one of my favorite pieces. Awesome. It's a great piece. I The color and... The the way he uses the instruments, mm-hmm. especially in in the in the first section at the beginning, yeah. those high horns and high uh, high cellos, I, I love that. It's very it's, it's such a playful sound. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Respighi just had a keen ear and uh, just really knew what sounded great, and he could really make an orchestra shine. Yeah, Pines of Rome is a perfect example of it. it has everything from mm-hmm. the opening of the first section, which is just shrill sounds and mm-hmm. just a circus like atmosphere going all the way to the last movement, which just builds up to one of the great iconic uh, moments in all of music.
yeah, the last movement is definitely my favorite. It's yeah. it's it starts off so ominous mm-hmm. and so low. Yeah. And it just keeps building and there are these little snippets of hope. Yeah. These little blossoming snippets of of hope. Yeah. In this in this kind of dreary almost sounding mm-hmm. dark build up. Dark build up, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, really I like, like to take that movement. Anytime someone's blasting rap music next door to me in the car, I like to mm-hmm. just find my Pines of Rome CD, stick yep. it in, and just blast blast the crap out of them next door <laughs> to me. Yeah, and it uh, works every time. So That's yeah, awesome. it's a great piece. Who else? Any other favorite composers? Olst. Yeah, orchestration. I mean, it's, orchestration definitely. Yeah, the planets. The I planets. Mean, how how each planet has its own different. Uh, Sound world. Sound world, yeah. Yeah, it's on, awesome. It's uncharacteristic and its own uh, personality. And I really like that each, you know, each of them is, is completely different and it's not, there, there's no really uh, reused melodies from one piece to the next. Yeah, each movement is its own. Any other favorite composers? Howard Hansen. Yeah, what his, about Howard Hansen? His symphonies. We just did his romantic symphony in January. Ooh, I love that one. The second Beautiful one? piece, yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love that one. He's got a very keen ear for melody. I mean, the second symphony just comes from the heart. Mm-hmm. Just melts your heart. And uh, it's a great piece. I love in the third movement of it how, how he takes you know that, that kind of dreary sound from the first movement, that very monotonous sound, yeah. and uses it to strengthen the buildup of the music towards the end of, mm-hmm. the, of the movement. Yeah. And how he uses the, the theme from the second movement to right. as... as the the finale of of uh, the third movement of the third movement yeah, yeah absolutely well you'd name three awesome composers are you working on anything now i know we have earthscape coming mm-hmm. up and we'll talk about that in a couple minutes okay. but do you have any other pieces that you're working on at the moment yes i have another piece in the series earthscape is only just only one of a series of pieces that i'm doing well i didn't know that this is new to me so what? There's a whole group of pieces that coincide with Earthscape. Yes. Okay. You seem like that is a big secret, but it's out now. It's out in the public. So what, tell me a little about the series of pieces. Well, I got the idea from from the planets. Okay. Because Holst never touched on on Earth. Right. He, he never did anything about Earth. So I was like, well, why couldn't I do a series of pieces about Earth? And okay. the different different uh, aspects of Earth. Now, what is Earthscape? Earthscape is kind of a look at Earth on a whole. Yes, the uh, landscape of Earth. Well, it's a tribute to the. It's a it's a tribute to Earth. It's a tribute to the the majesty and yeah. the beauty and the uniqueness of of Earth, and it's a celebration of life. Right, and, and there's a simplicity to your work as well. Mm-hmm. Just these beautiful chords, much like Hanson. Actually, there's a lot of simplicity in some of the lines that you write in this piece of music, and I think mm-hmm. our listeners um, at the concert are just going to love your piece. I'm really excited about it. Let's skip ahead to your next piece. So, what are you working on now? Now, I'm working on another piece in the series called Earthshine, which is going to be about light and luminescence and 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 uh, forms of life that create it. Okay. Such as maybe sea creatures, sure. you know, humans, city lights, that kind of that kind of no, how, those those are just a few things. How far are you into the work? I'm just at the beginning. You're just sketching out initial ideas. I have I have a, a pretty good intro yeah. and it builds up to a, a sort of nice crescendo then it dies down but but that's really all i've got yeah but i do, but what i have of it i do really like it yeah i can't wait to hear it yeah what are we looking at here how many pieces in your earth series 
Well, I don't want to be a copycat. All right, well, because just give Hulse, us... Hulse did, you know, seven, and All I right. like the number seven. Uh, so I, I kind of want to say seven. Okay, seven's good. good You're a copycat, though. <laughs> copycat noted. Um, no, seven is a good number, and I agree. Seven. So I can't wait to hear them all. And uh, maybe the Space Coast Symphony Orchestra can do all seven movements at one point. That would be phenomenal. All right. You heard it here first. Well, I want to thank you very much for uh, coming here today and talking uh, to our audience and to me about uh, your piece. If you want to hear Adam's music, you can hear a piece uh, of his called Earthscape on our Earth Odyssey concert. It's on May 23rd and 24th. You can find more information on our website, www.spacecoastsymphony.org. And uh, you get to meet Adam at this concert and uh, hear his awesome work. So, Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Aaron. It's an absolute, absolute honor to be here. Honor's mine, my friend. Thanks. That was very interesting, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah, I thought the interview was great and uh, kind of, uh, as you would say, pulls back the curtain yes. uh, behind Adam's mind and uh, and uh, really, and I think we're going to have a great time this weekend performing his work. Really I mean, great to be able to do a world premiere too. That's really it exciting. is. I love performing new music. I love having our orchestra. Uh, present so many new pieces each year and it's very exciting for us to do a new piece of music and especially of a very young composer who is just uh i think this is his first performance ever of any of his works oh it's wow. fantastic so it's an I, honor it's an honor yeah we're i'm really excited about it i remember a long time ago i was uh, conducting a community band and uh, there was a composer who's 95 years old and he he never had any of his music performed. He wrote so much music, and we found out about it late in, in his life. Someone discovered it, so I met with him, and then uh, he was on stage for a rehearsal of his piece, and I remember uh, rehearsing his piece, and he was just overcome with such emotion and joy. He was just crying uh, because he heard his music for the first time. 95 years of writing music. Wow. Um, well, that wouldn't consider if he was coming out of his mother's womb with a pen. <laughs> so, you know, 80 years of writing music sure. and uh, hearing his music for the first time uh, was was a really powerful experience for him and also for the musicians and myself. And also for the audience. I mean, that's a real treat for the audience to get to hear new music because a lot of orchestras, they don't play anything new. Right. There, there's always the question, uh, is new music, does new music turn off an audience? And uh, that's the, kind of the question and the challenge a lot of orchestras are facing. A lot of composers as well. Uh, you know, composers, so many brilliant composers out in the world today. And, you know some of their music, you know, only reaches so many people. Uh, and so it's a real challenge, I think, because there are the traditional orchestral uh, patrons that, you know, don't like new music or who, you know, scoff at the idea of hearing new music. Um, so it's a matter of getting audiences excited about new music. And well, I... Go, Go ahead. ahead. I don't want to interrupt. I look at it the other way. I mean, new, new music is great. Classics are great. 
but they, that was somebody else's vision or, or whatever you want to call it creation, but that's somebody else's. Um, and I love it, but I also think there's a place for new music and that's what I like about you. The fact that you take it seriously and, and you afford these composers the opportunity to do this. Yeah, but there's also a reasonable balance. I, I agree. I think most audiences are a little fickle. They'll go because they want to hear something that they know, which is why the Rolling Stones are still playing things they were playing in the 1960s right? because they want to hear their favorite song. But there's that balance of when do you you know, satisfy the audience with that thing that they know so well and it brings back all those great memories, but then you infuse something new. And I think we do a pretty good job here with uh, the Space Coast Symphony in doing that. Yeah, we... we present a lot of new works, uh, more than any group in Florida that I know of. And, uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm glad we're in the front and, uh, we get to do this because it's so much fun for me, the orchestra. And, you know, it's always interesting doing the year of the end or end of the year surveys, uh, where we ask, you know, what was, uh, our audience's favorite concerts or works that we presented. And a lot of the time it's the new pieces that, uh, kind of stick with the audiences. So that's very exciting, uh, for us. How do you decide where that line is, Aaron? Uh, it's, you light some incense, have some meditation, <laughs> Well, <yeah>. get some <laughs> cards out, you know? Yeah. The tarot cards. Uh, no, I've, I just, the past six, seven years of programming, we've kind of found, I think we found a good careful balance. Uh, there was one year I went a little uh, crazy with the programming and there was, you know, a lot of new music and we saw that it uh, affected our budgets and, and, you know, attendance. So I think now we have a good balance that uh, keeps our audience engaged uh, and, and presents new music at the same time. And if you take the flip side, the um, classics were new at one time. Right. I mean, like that's Riot good, of Spring, they point. had, yes. you know, riots when they, uh, <laughs> yep. you know, premiered Riot of Spring. So, and we haven't had any riots yet that I know of. So, <laughs> well, give, give it time. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's but, you know, but there's been a lot of pieces that weren't popular when they were written and premiered, but then they became classics. Crockett Group Insurance Company, here for you when you need us. As you look to satisfy your insurance needs in Vero Beach, the Crockett Group stands out in offering you proven performance and superior customer service. Meet our experienced, mature, and professional staff and see what the Crockett Group can do for you. Just visit info at thecrockettgroup.com. Not to switch gears, but let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Marion Kruger. Oh yeah, we uh, talked about her last week. You know, she really don't you, Aaron? I mean, she really killed. You know, on the Mother's Day concert. Yeah, I mean, she sang four selections. She sang a couple pop tunes, and then well, I say pop, but Gershwin, right? And uh, and Richard Rogers, uh, and then she sang two uh, uh, classical works as well from Puccini and one from Caccini, and uh, both were brilliant. And I thought the audience just loved her. I think we have a clip of the Puccini, don't we?
Marianne Kruger performing Oh Mio Babino Caro. Wow. It was great by Pacini. It was great. Yeah, great piece. And uh but we have a great concert coming up this weekend. Uh on the when we were off the air, we were talking about the concert stuck for four horns. Aaron, you wanted to elaborate a little bit more about the uh Schumann's concert stuck? Yeah, it's first off just an absolute powerhouse of a piece. I mean, it requires four incredible soloists to pull it off. It's very virtuosic. Um, it was written, I believe, in 1849. Um, this was actually Schumann's most productive year He uh, before he became mad. Wow. Um, several years later, he uh, 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 terrible... Um, outcome for him, but uh, he had a very productive year. The French horn was just starting to go through at this time uh, a reinvention, the addition of valves. Uh, before uh, before this, horns had no valves. They were hand horns. Right. Um, and they had uh, uh, piping that, uh, you know, changed the key. Now, the addition of valves uh, was taken by Schumann, uh, who also wrote his Adagio and Allegro, I think just a couple weeks before he wrote this concert stuck. Uh, and he took it as a challenge and uh, really wrote two fine works, one for solo horn and then this one for four concert horns. Mm-hmm. And it's just an absolute, uh, excite, absolutely exciting piece. Right. I've done the Adagio and Allegro. On, on tuba? Tu- on tuba. That's one of my uh, one of my favorites. I try to steal whatever literature I can from the, I'm sure you do. From the horn. So because really most <laughs> Jacobs always said the best brass literature was written for horn. So we sure. always, you know, took from that. So Yeah, I mean the audience is gonna love it and uh, as as far as it's concerned, it's the pinnacle of horn literature. Uh, and it's very rarely pay- played because it requires four stellar soloist so i think uh the audience is going to really dig it um it's light it's airy it's uh, the melodies are full of exuberance and uh it's just a lot of fun That was great. I'm really looking forward to that. It was inspiring. It was inspiring. The audience is going to love it. Yeah, they are. And uh, the four soloists that we have, Juan Berrios, Maria Serkin, Jennifer Mishuli, and John Ryther, all four of them uh, have performed with the orchestra as principal horn in in that capacity over the years. So it's going to be great bringing them all back on stage uh, to perform. Yeah, it's going to be great. Because Juan is off touring with the Dallas Brass now. Right. And uh, Maria is wow. up there uh, 
performing in Virginia uh, with the Virginia Symphony, mm-hmm. and Jennifer Mashuli's up in Pennsylvania uh, with the Kennett Symphony, and uh, John Ryther is the only horn that has remained, uh, and he performs with us regularly. So right, it's going to be great. Yeah, looking forward to it. These guys are so busy. I don't know how they keep their schedule straight. Honest to God, I don't right, think we're lucky to have them all here. Yeah, for this weekend. So. Absolutely, I think the uh, crowd is going to be in for the audience is going to be in for a very big treat. Right, it's going to be a good, great warm up for the. Uh, feature also sprock Zarathustra. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit? Because we've been just talking about the si- sunrise scene the last Sure. One weeks. of the most famous pieces, uh, but uh, sure. that's typically what most people only know of. From, they know from the, the whole first suite. two minutes. Right. It's amazing. And they may not even know the first two minutes if it wasn't for Stanley Kubrick's inclusion in 2001. Right. Um, it's a shame because the piece is, is a really great piece of music. It's 35 minutes long and it's uh, some really thrilling writing throughout. A very hard piece. I think for the orchestra going to be one of the more difficult pieces we've performed in our history. Um, just a couple points. Uh, this was a homage to Nietzsche. Um, Nietzsche was a great philosopher, uh, writings and, uh, Strauss was very inspired by his writings and it's more of a homage rather than a direct tone poem. Um, the piece itself, what we're very familiar with starts off, uh, of course, with just a very low murmur and the organ, string, bass, and the contrabassoon. Um, and it just really starts from the depth of the orchestra, and it's almost out of the range of human hearing. And uh, then, of course, the trumpets, you know, enter in unison with the famous phrase, um, CGC. And it's just an incredible opening fanfare um, by unison trumpets. And uh, the effects are identical to almost that of... Uh, Copeland's fanfare for the common man, where he uses those opening uh, intervals in the trumpets um, that give us the feeling of strength, breadth, optimism, possibility. Life. Right. And it's very important to also note the repetition. Repetition occurs quite a bit in this. It uh, it was a very uh, important point. So we hear that fanfare three times. And it's in the universal key of C. There's no major. There's no uh, minor. Excuse me. There's no sharps or flats. It only uses the white keys on the piano, so to speak, and is uh, enormously resonant uh, in its uh, writing. So uh, we feel C major in a very primal way as human beings. So all of these things uh, just right in the opening two minutes. Uh, the work is set up in uh, eight different sections. Which it reminds me, you know, earlier in the interview, you were talking about the Holst and the planets and how it really is. Each of the planets have its own different mood. If you go through also Sprague Zarathustra, very similar in that, you know, there are these different scenes and they, although there's a, a, a theme that goes throughout, they're very different feel. Right. We only hear that theme uh, in its full glory right from the opening two minutes. It's brought back those intervals. There's little snippets. There's little snippets of it. But uh, yeah. So after the fanfare, there's eight movements. They're all connected. There's no pause between them. Um, And uh, they all are uh, episodic in nature. And and I just think it's just going to be a really great piece. The audience probably doesn't know the entire piece, so it's going to be fun presenting it to them and uh, also pairing it with the images on the screen uh, that NASA has uh, worked on. The first movement, of course, is the sunrise. 
uh, and man feels the power of God. And, uh, but man still longs and uh, he plunges into passion, which is the second movement and finds no peace. He then turns towards science and tries in vain to solve life's problems in a fugue, which is the third movement. Then agreeable dance tunes sound and he becomes an individual and his soul soars upward while the world sinks far below him. And that's kind of the quintessential essence of uh, Nietzsche's work. And, uh, and it was very meaningful to Strauss. Um, Nietzsche's work, um, especially this text from uh, Thus Spake uh, Zarathustra, um, was used in works by Mahler and also Frederick Dalius. And, uh, but Strauss not only just used a part of his text, uh, he used this work, which is a purely orchestral representation of Nietzsche's work. And from the time of the premiere, commentators, uh, other philosophers, critics, all have attempted to find a direct relationship between the music and Nietzsche's text. Um, And Strauss, I think he understood the difficulty, um, perhaps even the futility of attempting a musical depiction of Nietzsche's philosophy. And uh, Strauss, I think, even confessed, um, he said, I did not intend to write philosophical music or portray Nietzsche's great work musically. I meant rather to convey in music an idea of the evolution of the human race from its origin through the various phrases, phases of development, religious as well as scientific, up to Nietzsche's idea of the Superman. This whole symphonic poem is intended as my homage to the genius of Nietzsche, which found its great exemplification in his book, Thus Spake There Zarathustra. So I think uh, it's just a really deep work and uh, just one that uh, just connects to the soul. And uh, it did certainly for Strauss. And I feel that his writing will connect with our audience as well. I mean, it's a great way to end the season. It's the uh, pinnacle, if you will. And we look forward to it. I'm excited about it. And I have some very dear friends and family members that are going to be attending as well. Oh, yeah. It's a don't miss. Yeah, absolutely. Get your tickets if you have not. Get them. And what are the times for this uh, concert? We should probably review those, even though we've been talking about them for like the last month. <laughs> Well, it's the 23rd. Saturday, May 23rd at 7 p.m. at At the the Scott Scott Center, one of my favorite venues. Yes. Yep. Mine too. And then Sunday, May 24th at 3 p.m. at uh, beautiful Vero Beach uh, High School. 
still a venue I've not made it down to, but I'm looking forward to it. I believe in the, I believe in the next season, we actually have several performances down there. I'm going to have to make it down there. You should definitely go down there. It's a really wonderful venue. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to be partnering with NASA. I think that's a, we have them in our backyard. Um, the space program has been such a instrumental part in this community's, uh, uh, success and, uh, just of our lifestyle. It's part of our life. And, uh, I think, uh, it's great that we can partner with them and that, uh, we're so fortunate to have such a incredible thing right here in our backyard. Right. It's a great opportunity for us and for the audience to be able to see these images. Yeah. It's an honor and it's very exciting. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it always comes down to, we have to, uh, We have to say goodbye, but there's always another show right around the corner. This is Bill Trudeau. And Eric Lee. I'm Jeremy Hickman. And I'm Aaron Collins. Saying, we'll We'll see you at the show. You've been listening to Maestros On Air. Brought to you by the Space Coast Symphony Orchestra. Remember, you can support the symphony in many ways, including a visit to Maestro's Cafe, located just inside the main entrance to the Brevard Central Library and Reference Center, 308 Forest Avenue, Cocoa, Florida. Maestro's Cafe serves a variety of coffee and other drinks, as well as breakfast and lunch selections, and is open most days from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. with extended hours on Tuesday and Thursday, closed Sunday. For more information about the symphony or upcoming concerts, like us on Facebook. Or visit our webpage at spacecoastsymphony.org. And remember, as always, we'll see you at the show. Production.